You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Jeep Klein, who is the first Thailand venture capitalist. Her experiences include creating a startup, taking a leadership role in technology companies, and managing big data at the World Bank, and teaching at the Haas Business School at Berkeley. She enjoys applying strategies and analytics to solve difficult problems and create meaningful impact. On today's show, we talk about if the U.S. started to have an inflation issue, how would that impact VC funds? What is the due diligence process in Latin America? And how are the venture capitalist opportunities right now and in the future in Southeast Asia? This is much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's start the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Very excited about today's interview. I'm here with Jeep Klein. So Jeep was introduced to me by a good friend at the Intel Alumni Group. James has made many intros in the past to several of our past guests, and everyone has been an absolute all-star. So Jeep has a pretty high bar, but actually after you guys find out a little bit more about her, you'll know that she leapfrogged over that, pole vaulted to new heights. She is an all-star. Now, I'm not going to say anything more. Jeep, can you give us a brief introduction about your career up to this point? Yeah, I can also share a little bit about my personal history as well. I'm from Bangkok, Thailand, was born as a second generation Chinese Thai. My grandparents immigrated from China and my dad had a fourth grade education. He was a self-made man. So I watched him learn how entrepreneur has to hustle and become successful. In 1997, things started to turn because of Asian economy crisis. It impacted my country and my family very severely because we were in real estate business. Imagine it was, since I grew up, it was at the rising point, and then over a week or a month, we lost everything. At that point, we were talking about what we were going to do. I was in high school, about to go to college. So I decided that I'm not going to do engineering. I decided to study economics so that I can come back and help my country and hopefully create a long-term sustainable growth for my own country and region. And I think it was the biggest and the most important turning point, the first turning point in my life that shaped the way I think and who I become today. So after college, I came to this country, but because we didn't have money, I wanted to come to graduate school. My, I was told throughout my life that we're going to send you to the U.S. It has the best education institutions. And one day when that dream cannot become true. I had to figure it out. So I borrow money from my aunt for a plane ticket and a little bit of living expense for the first year of school here because the student loan was not an option in my world at the time. I came over and I knew I had to get a scholarship. It's the only way that I was going to graduate from grad school here. And it was very hard because most scholarship, most money would go to a PhD students, not master's program. But I came here for master's in applied economics at the University of Michigan, which was the highest ranked school that I applied to. And it was a phenomenal place. I managed to get a scholarship with stipend, 
with support from so many professors who became my mentor and my cheerleaders later in life. After I graduated, I thought, "Oh my goodness, I'm actually not that bad compared to other students. I'm not going back to Thailand. Let's save the goal of Thailand for a little bit. I'm just going to create a global impact. How do I do that? I want to work at the World Bank, but." Michigan was not technically a feeder school to um, the World Bank, and the role that I wanted to work on usually they get PhD students uh, who graduate from Ivy League school. So I saved my stipends and flew myself to DC from from Michigan to DC to pitch myself. So I cold call economists, I cold email economists, maybe like fifty of them, and I pitch why you should hire me. Whoever respond to my email, and I probably got like, of course, say forty nine rejections, and ultimately one person said yes, but not true yes. Yes, you come work for free as an intern, maybe three or six months, and we'll we'll see how it goes. I was like, deal. <laughs> In a month, I got a job, a paid job. In six months, I got the. Best role I got to travel to so many countries all around the world in emerging markets, including in Africa, where I learned firsthand that technology was going to be important. That was 15, 17 years ago, and people already use feature phone to send payment to their parents from one province to another to their cousins, and that was before PayPal became famous. They didn't even have electricity after 5 p.m. Like the world was like got shut off. They came in front of the house, sometimes lighted candles, and they used feature phone for payment. I thought if I'm going to create a true impact at a global scale, it's going to have to be a technology. I came back to the institution, the global institution that I thought that I would never leave because I got to work with the best in the world. But there's something about those experience, about trips that I made. To the real emerging markets, that there's going to have to be a different way. I came to Silicon Valley. I aborted my plan. I was like, I'm not doing a PhD in economics. I'm just going to figure out on how to use technology to impact lives all around the world. And I came in with big dreams. I got my MBA at Berkeley along the way. That helped me transition into tech industry. And after that, I joined Intel. Which was a phenomenal experience. I was at the right place at the right time, joining the rotation program that allowed me to build political capital inside the company, work with the senior leaders who were trained by Andy Grove, and I helped pioneer one of the first Android-based devices that were launched throughout the world in emerging economies. I did that about seven years. Then I was like, I'm ready to take the next leap. What else can I do? Then I joined a startup, and it was a roller coaster. But in a very short period of time, I was on the board, and I saw how VC investors decided to invest in a startup company and not to invest a company. I watched them closely, from angel investors to mid-sized fund to two billion dollar funds. And I thought there is a missing ingredient here that they don't see the opportunity in emerging markets quite yet. So last year, 
I decided to launch my own fund, a venture capital fund that invests in entrepreneurs in emerging markets, starting in Latin America. And I also launched a project called Sea Sky Lab, that being the bridge between Silicon Valley and Southeast Asia, the region I'm from. The goal is to help bring the next generation entrepreneurs and venture investors to really scale up and create a vibrant economy for the region and for the country. I love your mission. Here we always say, Silicon Valley podcast, we want to be the bridge of entrepreneurs, investors, and that to the rest of the world. I love how you have the same mission, so I'm I'm kind of giddy right now (laughs) hearing that. And actually, your journey is incredible. The instance with your family, the grit you had to come to the U.S., the tenacity to 50 no's or 49 no's, that one yes, just everything up to this point is absolutely incredible. But I got so many questions on what you already said. Can we go back to a little bit of the World Bank? So that's in the news a lot. A lot of us don't understand, but it is so powerful. It has such a huge influence on so many people around the world. What do you think is happening right now with the World Bank in some of these emerging countries and some of these other economic areas outside of Silicon Valley? If you are not familiar with the World Bank, it is an international organization with the goal of eliminating, reducing poverty all around the world. There are a lot of ways to do that, but most importantly, the World Bank would fund the government's projects and technical support to help them build infrastructure, you know, whether that may be road or education, clean water, education for especially girls at a young age, trying to close the gap and lift people out of the poverty. And the reason it's very important is all of these type of investment really help build the middle class, not only bring up people from the bottom of pyramid, that's how we say, to live hopefully higher than a dollar or two dollars a day so that they can go to school, the infrastructure so that they can commute, they can travel. So the project in itself is very critical for the country long-term development. And the size, I mean, if you talk about deal terms, the size is really big because when you talk about infrastructure, it is a massive investment. So usually it would go through the government in each country so that they can work together in terms of the funding, in terms of the project design, in terms of the technical assistance that they need to make the project successful in the long run to create growth and prosperity. And that's the main role of of the World Bank. So it will continue to be very important, especially right now when at the global scale, as we know, we experienced a pandemic and it impacted countries differently. We are very lucky in the U.S. We started getting vaccines. A lot of countries, COVID is still a big problem. So after this, it's going to have to be a rebuilding effort on how we're going to access the people who might left the labor force, meaning they might lose their jobs. Students who used to be able to go to school, they might not be able to go to school. How do we access them and get them into the workforce, get them back into school at a global level? And that's why World Bank is an amazing place to be because you work on the, on the area and the project that is truly matter for countries around the world. I have to ask, you said right there a little bit about it helps bring up the lower class to the middle class. And then there's other kind of countries that their middle class is now divergent. Does the World Bank want to step into situations like that where it's an already developed country, but yet the economics of the country is changing? Or does it, they only focus more on that emerging country? Usually it focuses more on emerging countries. They have stronger needs. That's the majority of the population. 
And that's where the demand is the greatest. The World Bank doesn't, well, I, I don't know whether it changed. First of all, I have to say that because that was 15, 17 years ago. When it was there, it didn't create a plan for the US or for the European countries. In fact, the G7 countries, they're the donor, the major, the major donors for the World Bank so that they can use those capital to really improve the economy and infrastructure for developing countries. One thing I've never actually had the opportunity to ask anyone, how does the economy ups and downs affect venture capitalism? How does it affect the raising fund or deploying capital? What is the VC thinking about when the economy might be altering, might be changing? Venture capital investment is an asset class of financial investment. Definitely, it is impacted by the economy. And when we are talking about asset class, VC or venture is usually is considered as a high risk asset compared to bonds, stocks, PE, real estate. So then there is VC. But the beauty of it is that when you invest, the small success that you have basically generate big returns, right? So you look into the portfolio. And the reason it is important to uh, mention this is it goes with the economic cycle. It is very interesting. Before COVID, if you talk to the investors who invest in a venture fund, they actually do not want to invest very much in 2018. And I asked them why. And we were talking about high net worth individual, sometimes institutions and whatnot. And they said, you know, and family offices too. And they said, you know, it's because I think that we're going to have economic crisis really soon. We have been experiencing the high growth and economic boom in the last 10 years, and it's going to come. So I want to preserve my cash so that I can handle what's going to come next. People have the expectations of what's going to come next, but that caused the problem because they might over-reserve, right? Instead of invest, they said no, because they don't know how big it's going to be. For sophisticated investors, if they know that the crisis is going to happen, they would invest. Because when the crisis happened, the valuation or the price of the asset, including the VC asset, is usually low. So you kind of want to invest at that point in time. And when the economy grow and the company grow in the next, say, five to 10 years, you get to capitalize on the exit or hopefully the IPO based on the performance of the portfolio company, as well as the performance of the economy. So you sort of like get a double benefit out of it. But it's very hard sell, right? Because not all the investors would understand it. It's actually a good time to do that. Last year, I launched a venture fund during the pandemic, and I had tremendous support from a lot of investors who invested in my fund and is still going. And they said, look, this is the best time to invest. Now, I get both sophisticated investors and non-sophisticated investors who might not want to invest in 2018. The question is why? Because they now know already that, ha, huh, this is the pandemic. This is the recession. I can actually handle it. It's not as bad as I expected a year or two years ago. I want to invest now so that you can deploy my capital and then I get to ride up along the economy when the portfolio generated returns. This, these a couple of years are the years that, if you could, I would uh, encourage a lot of people to look into the venture capital class of asset for investment. 
usually when the economy is booming, the company is very expensive. It becomes the tool that you can still invest, but it's harder to generate returns. So it depends on how you look at it, and that's why every time when we have the economic cycle like this, and you look into the investment class as well as the sophistication of the investors, you can kind of group them and see how to create the opportunity inside the pandemic. Okay, now what happens though if the economy there's runaway inflation? Does that change anything at all in the investor's mindset? If the inflation actually happens, you're going to start to see the real estate boom and whatnot. So the VC or the portfolio company is another vehicle that you can see that you can invest as a hedge of your overall portfolio investment. Okay, what about the opposite deflation? <laughs> the deflation is is the opposite, right? There's going to be a se- uh, some sectors that are impacted by either inflation or deflation. So in the event of deflation, holding the um, real estate or the hard asset might not be the way to go, right? Everybody will get impacted. So you want to focus on the opposite. Venture investor is interesting because it is one of the portfolio investment. It is not the only one. So it can be optimized based upon the interest rate, the inflation, and what other asset class that investors would invest in. How about not looking at it from the investor side? Now you're the VC, you have the funding. How are you going to go into the negotiations with the companies based on the economic change of inflation, deflation? Are you going to ask for different valuations, different term sheets with the preferred shares? How would you change your talks with the founders based on your thoughts of the outside world? Just to give you an example, I invest in Line America. And we know Line America has higher fluctuation in the last 10 years, and it still experienced that until today, whether that may be currency fluctuation, in some cases, the government instability, the political changes event, economy crisis, the pandemic and whatnot. When we invest, we look into the opportunity for arbitrage. First of all, we are an impact fund, meaning we invest in underserved and overlooked entrepreneurs who are super talented, who really understand the local economy and how to scale locally and hopefully globally. So in that, in a nutshell, so when we look into the asset class or the company that we invest in, we know that there's going to be a lot of variance in terms of the currency, in terms of the political situation, but the valuation of the company on average overall is lower than valuation in the U.S., especially in the Bay Area. Now, are you talking in terms of multiples on the amount of the company you'll get a percentage for? What are you talking about lower? When you start investing, you might start investing in an early stage round, say seed round. The price of the company at the seed round in emerging markets in Latin America is still lower than the price of the same round, say, the same type of the company, the same character of the company, the relatively same, same type of the business. It's still low, the valuation of the price of the company is lower than in the US or in other developed countries. So you got in, you invest at the lower price relatively. And when the company gets to grow into the next stage, it could be a series A or series B. At that point in time, they started, they started to catch up the valuation of the US price, the Bay Area price. So you get 
to benefit from, we call the spread or the arbitrage because you come in really low. And then when they grow and catch up in the US valuation, then the price is higher. At the same time, you create an impact. And that was financial return, but you have an impact return because these are emerging markets entrepreneurs who otherwise wouldn't be able to raise in the Bay Area because they might not be the inner circle here. They might not have the network and access. So we bring access to them. And there's a huge opportunity in a market. The way that I look in terms of investment is, first of all, it's not a speculation in terms of this is a short term, a year or two. We invest so that the company can grow in the long term. It could be five years or 10 years. And usually 10 years is the length of a venture fund operation. So in 10 years, we close the fund. It means we expect the company to exit by year 10. So it's kind of like not a short-term investment, definitely not speculation, not a super long-term investment like bonds or in some cases, stock portfolio that you have. It's a medium term that create a high impact on the economy. So I want to ask more questions about talking to the companies in Latin America, your experiences and how that was different. Before even that, can we go back to when you raised your fund and having conversations with the investors? Because most VCs, from my understanding of their conversations are, we're going to get you these returns. And it's all in terms of money. Whereas you're talking to them going, yes, there's the financial return and we're helping all these people out there. How are those conversations like when you're saying, hey, there's this double bottom line or triple bottom line or whatever you want to call it of doing good in the community as well? If the investors already view VC as an opportunity, they love it. There are a group of investors as well who never invest in VC or startup, so they are not the right fit. But if you would talk to investors who already invest and they know that Latin America or other countries in emerging markets are growing really, really fast, they view this as a true opportunity because there's also market indicators out there, whether that may be Brazil and other countries that started to have unicorns coming out. So the question is more about how do we get in and how do we access top deals? Plus, right now, impact is a big theme whether that may be diversity or some other areas, say the environment area that they want to focus on, depending on the preference of different investors. So this is definitely, I would say, fit the bill. I kind of like that because, I mean, you are helping the community, but actually there's more opportunity for you to help these communities that it's almost like, I don't want to say your secret hidden treasure right there, but it does seem kind of like it's almost like this unlocked hidden box of gold out of reach of most people or out of the eyesight of most people. Yeah, it's win-win, right? It's win-win. And, you know, we are doing impact fund, but impact is not nonprofit. We optimize return because investors need return, but you get something on top of the return, which is the impact and legacy. Okay, now let's talk about the communication with these startups in, in Latin America. What's that like? I would guess that the conversation, are the conversations with them, the due diligence, is that the exact same as here in Silicon Valley or is it a little bit different? Is it a little bit more tailored to that environment? We expect them to do really, really well. We expect them to be on par with the Silicon Valley startup companies. We get in a seed round, but we told them, look, we come in, we want to lead the round. We're going to take the board seat, even though it's a very informal board environment at that point in time, but that's okay. We want to train and coach you on how to become a professional company so that you can grow and scale 
effectively. We follow on around in a Series A, plus help them raise funding in the U.S. later on. So, because of that thesis and mindset, we do expect them to understand what our thesis is and our approach to help them to become successful. So, the communication is: Look, you have great idea. We know why it is important for the company to exist and how you're going to scale and become successful. You understand you have the deep insights that we don't have, maybe in the local country that you can scale in the region and outside the region one day. So we would get in, lead around, and tell them, "Hey, look, this is how we would coach you on how to operate and help them successful in the long run." Do the local startups do they see your fund as wow? They're offering all these advantages that no other investor here is able to offer, or are they looking at you and all the other local investors all in one category? They want to raise money from VC here, but they don't have access. They don't know how to get to them. They don't know how to get referred to talk to them. So, if you look in the emerging markets, the reason why we want to play at seed round as a starting point is because this is the round that a lot of company fell off the map. They were successful at incubation level. They were able to raise um, initial funding from friends and families or angel investors. And then, when it comes time for the first professional institutional round, they don't have anywhere to go, or they are, but there are only a few of them. There aren't enough cluster for them to go around. So it's the opportunity for us, but it's also the opportunity for them because we, that's why we our method is we have to lead and we have to coach them because they need that to become successful. And once they are successful, we are also successful. So that's kind of like the background ecosystem playing field. Now, five years from now, or ten years from now, I hope there are going to be a lot of seed VC funds. They might not even need to come to the U.S. to raise funding in a follow-on round or early stage round. If the ecosystem is developed enough, it's good for them. It's good for the entrepreneurs, and it's so good for the VC. The governments where you're now investing in in Latin America. Are they given support or kind of push back to this outside capital coming in? And when it is time to recoup that capital, time to harvest, are there any worries about that capital then maybe being difficult? We are not involved in the government. We would love to have support with them. We want to work with them, but at this point in time, we are so early, so we have not done that yet. When we are talking about investing in Latin America, these companies are registered. In the U.S., there are C Corp Delaware. If they have not done that yet, when we are doing due diligence and when when we interview them, we decide to invest in those type of company. We have an operating partner. We have a team of partner who actually help them do that because we want to set them up correctly so that they can scale and raise fund from VCs in the U.S. or in Europe later on if they wanted to. When we are talking about Latin America founders. The registration legally it has to happen here, and that would help us. So let's say if the company get acquired, when we have to distribute our um, capital or profit back to our um, investors, limited partners, we can do that as if they are American company because they are American company. Currently, you're bringing awareness to Southeast Asia. Tell us about that. What have you? Come across any roadblocks or anything in this journey right now? There's, there's a theme of my work that 
I kind of put together based on the last 20 years of my journey. And I believe that technology investment is a new form of economic development. And that's why I launched a fund last year. And the very same concept is also true for Southeast Asia. But the approach is a little bit different because if I would invest in Southeast Asia, I want to include my country, Thailand. And Southeast Asia, it is fragmented. There are a lot of countries within the region. They speak different languages. The level of development in terms of GDP per capita and in terms of the technology development is also different. Singapore is doing really well. They have the government support. There are a lot of VC funds or, you know, they're kind of like the, the Silicon Valley level in terms of the investor so, so, sophistication. The rest of the country and the region, not so. I mean, you have Indonesia and Vietnam that they are doing relatively well. And then you have countries like Thailand, the Philippines is coming up quite a bit, but still, you know, Thailand, the Philippines and Malaysia, they are a little bit behind in terms of the performance of the success that coming out of the region. When I created Sea Sky Lab, being the bridge between Silicon Valley and Southeast Asia, before I can invest, I want to make sure that the entrepreneurs really understand what it means to play internationally and they cannot play locally because to be successful in the long run, they have to link and integrate themselves with the U.S. the same way that Latin America has been playing with the U.S. in terms of fundraising, in terms of like market expansion, in terms of hiring talents. It's going to be the multi-way street. They can be just contained and kept in the region. So the first thing first, they have to understand what it means when they build the company, they want to found a company that can be successful. If they are venture capital, they need to learn what is the mindset of the venture capitalist. For example, you are not going to get your money back in a year or two. This is not stock trading. It's not that liquid. Something like that. It helped me test and understand the market in the region, again, outside Singapore, right? We need to know what they know. And the challenge that I run into is precisely that. I discover that there are a lot of misunderstandings about how, from the VC side, people want to get into startup, but they don't know that, look, your capital might be locked up until, you know, in the next 10 years. And this is an expected return. A lot of companies are going to fail, but on average, venture fund hope that they are going to generate return, massive return, right? All of these basic understanding that has to be trained or they have to learn first. On the other hand, on the entrepreneurial side, a lot of founders, sometimes they didn't yet realize that founding companies is actually extremely hard. We talk a lot about this here, but they thought, oh my gosh, because of the news that I've heard, you know, it's a lot of fun. There are like free lunch, free haircut and run. I'm like, no. It's actually really, really hard and you should cut expense. You should make sure you're going to last the longest. This is like a long-term commitment. Can you do this? And it starts from the basic level of understanding that I have already started doing by creating a community, linking the CEO and founders who are super successful here and share their experience on how they did it, share their failures on what were the missteps that they did in the past so that 
other people can leapfrog. So I target the emerging class of venture capital as well as the entrepreneurs who want to rise up and who are hungry, who want to be successful in the society. And that's my goal. Underserved and overlooked people. I mean, there is so much there. And for our listeners, some of our past episodes with, for example, Sam Wong, he talked about the mental wellness of founders and how many of them literally just kind of collapse almost under the pressure and the strain of personal relationships and family relationships as they're growing companies. Another person that was on was the founder of Flowar that talked about how he would spend Friday nights, Saturday nights in the office, not because he wanted to, but because he, he had to. And literally, he had no friends, nothing, because for four years, he had dedicated to his company. So it's, it's actually really refreshing to hear another person on the show talk about what it's really like. Because, I mean, I was on Clubhouse the other day, and a person in the group from India was talking about how you know, they wanted to come to Silicon Valley to have such a fun work environment at a startup. And I was trying to tell the person, Silicon Valley, the TV show and Silicon Valley <laughs> startup life. Are the opposite. Are one show you want to see, the other you're crying when you're there. So there's a, there's a pretty big gap. Yes. So, but I mean, that's fantastic. But with that, I guess, can you tell us a story maybe of a past investment you've done or a company maybe you're looking at just a story of one of these overseas companies that you've gotten to know. The first in investment that I did when I launched a fund is an edtech company, Women Founders, based in Peru. I really, really like them. I'm so proud of them. Not because they are doing well financially, they know how to scale the company, but the type of investment, reskill, upskill, training, ability to navigate their ways through the pandemic and create jobs through their company and help other people, it's a true impact on the economy. And I use this example a lot when I talk to people and entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia as well, because one, they came from a small country. I mean, Peru is a small country. The GDP per capita is actually lower than a lot of other emerging markets as well. Second, there are women founders. They realize their own capability on what they can do if they create this type of startup company that would impact the economy. They didn't know whether they were going to be successful, but they try. And from the series of trying and trying, and in some cases, changing the direction of the company, right now the company is basically is almost break even, and they're not even Series A yet. It's rare. And I just like it at so many level. And we are talking a lot about overlooked and underserved emerging markets entrepreneur, especially women. So this is a true opportunity. And by the way, I already see the return on my cap table that this company is going to do so, so well in the long term. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question that <laughs> may have a different answer in a negative way, but I'm really curious. You've been around the world, global mindset. If something happens, say, in Southeast Asia between two superpowers, a conflict, would that change your investment thesis? Would that change anything you're doing? Or would things continue the way they are? No. I think that if you 
first come in with the mindset in terms of investment that, look, this is a long-term investment. This is not a speculation. If Latin America can do it with the political instability, the hyperinflation, with the economy that is up and down, Southeast Asia has more stability, honestly. If you look into these variables with the relatively similar GDP per capita, first is a long-term investment. It's not a short-term speculation. And two, these kind of impact investment, it goes to the real sector, ed tech, health tech, food tech, supply chain, sustainability, all of these areas that we are looking at, of course, e-commerce, which is huge. It's going to change and shape. It's up and down, but it's in the realm that we think the founders can manage. And that comes with when not we can see this company exit, which is the light at the end of the tunnel, or IPO. So there's going to be up and down along the cycle. And I'm sure that you know, it's going to impact some sector more, more than another. Like right now, we know that healthcare is rising really fast. EdTech is rising really fast because of the pandemic. Food delivery is rising really fast. There are some sector like real estate tech and whatnot that is impacted quite severely. But in the long run or medium run, if you are a good founder and we know you're a good founder, they're going to figure it out on how to go through this. And we have expectations that they will talk to us. When they experience challenges, we like to be the first to know. We don't want them to keep and stress out talking about the mental health. The more you share with the investors, work with them as partners, we want to be their partner and we're going to succeed together. I really believe. Deep. I'll vote for you when you run for politics in the future. <laughs> no superpowers here. Everybody work hard. <laughs> Amazing answers. Jeep, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, get in touch with you, what's the best way to go about doing it? LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook and Clubhouse. Fantastic. I will put all that information in the show notes. So please visit us at the Silicon Valley Podcast.com. Check out the show notes there. Subscribe to our channel. And for people out there, I have to give a shameless plug for myself. If you're a mid market company looking for a mergers acquisition, growth capital, or that, my email is sf at globalcapitalmarkets.com. I'm here to help you out. And with that, Jeep, I got to thank you for being a guest here on the Silicon Valley podcast. I learned a lot. I loved it. And I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Thank you so much. I should recruit you to come work with me. Everyone heard that, right? <laughs> that, that sounded like a legit offer to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Can we put it on the blockchain. <laughs> thank you, Sean. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.